0: You're listening to The Ordinary Vegan Podcast, where we teach you everything you need to know about adopting a plant-based diet full or part-time. Our goal is to empower you to live a long and healthy life.
1: You can find today's show at ordinaryvegan.net or on iTunes. If you have any questions, please send an email to questions at ordinaryvegan.net. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ordinary Vegan podcast number 95, alcohol and cancer risk, should you be concerned. If we haven't met, my name is Nancy Montori, and I advocate a plant-based lifestyle for health, your health, the planet's health, and for animal health and welfare. Thanks so much for being here. I so appreciate you spending time with me. In this podcast, so let's get to it. COVID-19 is affecting every family across this country and most countries across the world, which has put the spotlight on some new habits we might be experiencing during this stay-at-home time. And one of those habits could be drinking alcohol, because a spike in alcohol sales has alarmed some health experts and officials around the world. When the pandemic began, restaurants closed down here in the United States, but liquor stores in most parts of this country were deemed essential and stayed open. This and many other factors led to an uptick of alcohol sales during the pandemic. Unfortunately, alcohol misuse was already a public health concern in the United States with increases in emergency room visits and alcohol-related deaths. Of course, it's no surprise that during this pandemic, many people are drinking more to cope with stress, with insomnia, and with boredom. There are many reasons not to consume alcohol or at least cut back on alcohol, First off, alcohol inhibits your body's ability to burn fat because when alcohol is consumed, it's burned first as a fuel source before your body uses anything else. When your body is using alcohol as a primary source of energy, the excess glucose and lipids end up as body fat. So if you are concerned about weight gain, I would definitely cut back on alcohol. Alcoholic beverages don't have to include nutrition labels on their bottles, and many people have no idea about how many calories, empty calories, I might add, they're taking in when they consume wine, beer, or spirits. Alcohol can also affect your immune system and make you more vulnerable to respiratory diseases like COVID-19 because drinking impairs immune cells in key organs like the lungs. I know I've said this many times, but the healthier a person's immune system is, the quicker it can clear out a virus and recover from disease. Alcohol can also trigger inflammation in the gut, which destroys microorganisms, which also affects your immune system health. But the real problem with alcohol... Is the growing concern about its connection to cancer, and many people are not aware that drinking alcohol can lead to an increased risk of certain types of cancer, including breast cancer. So today, I invited oncologist Dr. Noel Lacanti to discuss the relationship between alcohol use and cancer. Noel Lacanti, M.D is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Wisconsin, UW, Carbone Cancer Center in Madison, Wisconsin. She completed medical school at the University of Illinois in Chicago and did her internship in internal medicine at UW and completed her internal medicine residency at Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. Her clinical interests are in medical oncology, and she maintains a practice in gastrointestinal cancers. Her research and outreach interests are in cancer control across the cancer continuum, and she is the principal investigator for the Wisconsin Comprehensive Cancer Control Program. Through this work, she chairs the action plan on alcohol, for Wisconsin. She is also the first author on the American Society of Clinical Oncology policy statement on alcohol and cancer and has served on the ASCO Prevention Committee. She has received funding from the CDC for a large effort across federally qualified health centers in Wisconsin to improve colorectal cancer screening rates in 2006. Dr. La became the recipient of the American Society of Clinical Oncology Young Investigator Award. So, she knows her stuff. I'm hoping today's show helps us take an honest look at alcohol and the amounts we drink. And think about if those amounts are worth the risk of cancer or other health issues and then decide what's right for us individually. Before we begin our conversation with Dr. Lucanti, I want to read a quote from one of my favorite authors, Buddhist monk Pema Children. This popped up while I was putting together this podcast, and it seemed very relevant to this moment, to this podcast. So I wanted to share it. Here it goes. Each day, we're given many opportunities to open up or shut down. Most of us do not take these situations as teachings. We automatically hate them. We run like crazy. We use all kinds of ways to escape. All addictions stem from this moment when we meet our edge and we just can't stand it. We feel we have to soften it, pad it with something, And we become addicted to whatever it is that seems to ease the pain. That is from Pema's book, "When Things Fall Apart: Heart Advice for Difficult Times," which I highly recommend, and I will put a link to the book in this week's podcast. Now, let's welcome Dr. Nicole LaConte. Hi, Dr. LaConte, and thank you so much for being here with the ordinary vegan community. Can I ask you about your background as an oncologist and how did you get interested in the link between alcohol and cancer?
0: Sure. Yep. Um, So I'm a GI medical oncologist, which is to say I treat cancers of the gastrointestinal tract um, in my clinical practice. And then in my research, uh, because I'm an academic oncologist, I'm interested in cancer control, which is an arm of public health um, aimed at reducing uh, the burden of cancer. And so the, one of the main ways we do that is with cancer prevention work. And so um, I joined a committee for my professional society um, on cancer prevention, and we had the opportunity to write this alcohol statement. And the reason I I did that was because most, many of the cancers, three of the cancers are um, the types of cancers that I treat, specifically esophageal, colorectal, and liver cancer.
1: Before we talk about the connection between cancer and alcohol, I read that if you're trying to cut unnecessary calories, alcohol has to go. Is it true that alcohol inhibits your body's ability to burn fat?
0: Yeah, I think that's, the, that's one of the theories. I don't know that that's completely settled science, but what we do know is that alcohol is what are called empty calories, meaning... Um, Calories with very low nutritional benefit. Uh, Things like sugared sodas would also be in that category. So just from a strictly calories in, calories out kind of perspective, uh, limiting alcohol would be a smart way to go about it.
1: As a medical oncologist who specializes in the relationship of cancer and alcohol, I imagine the first question my audience would have is how much alcohol are we talking about is a moderate drinker at risk? Um, say two drinks a day. What is the amount of alcohol that increases your risk of cancer?
0: Mm-hmm. Depends on the type of cancer. Um, so, one of one of the important points is that um, nu- This is a fairly nuanced message around alcohol. It's not all cancers. It's seven different cancers, but not every cancer. Not all patterns of alcohol use are risky, depending on which type of cancer you're talking about. But if we look at breast cancer, which is um, obviously very common, and so there's a large number of women that are affected with alcohol-associated breast cancer, um, even one drink a day increases your risk. So for breast cancer, yes, uh, even moderate use is, does elevate your risk. Now for other types of cancer, like head and neck cancer, it really looks like it's um, like lots of use over many years would really be what you need to to elevate your risk. So that's a long-winded way to say it depends, but we recommend that people stay under the guidelines, which are up to one drink a day for women, two drinks a day for men, and you can't batch it, meaning you can't not drink Monday to Friday so you can have six on Saturday kind of thing.
1: Well, let's talk about breast cancer because there's been a lot of stories recently, um, a lot of news that research is consistently showing that drinking alcoholic beverages, beer, wine, and liquor increases a woman's risk of breast cancer. Can you tell us why?
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's an important point you made that um, it really doesn't matter what kind of alcohol you ingest. They all have ethanol, which is thought to be the um, reason, the mechanism why um, these increase your risk of cancer. So for breast cancer, when someone ingests alcohol, when women ingest alcohol, it raises our body's levels of estrogen and estrogen metabolites. And breast cancer, most types are responsive to estrogen, meaning more estrogen causes more growth. Um, so this would be important when we look at, um, you know, what types of breast cancer are most effective, affected, and it is indeed the so-called ERPR positive breast cancer. And that stands for estrogen and progesterone receptor positive breast cancer. So for breast cancer, we think it has to do with estrogen manipulation. Further evidence of this is that uh, women that drink larger amounts before their first pregnancy when the breast tissue is fully matured, um, that does seem to be a higher risk period, meaning that binge drinking when you're in your college age, before you've had a baby, for example, before you've breastfed, would be higher risk than binge drinking when you're an
1: older adult. What is ethanol exactly?
0: yeah it's just a very simple chemical compound um, literally of that's literally what alcohol is is ethanol, and then we add all different types of ingredients or flavors to it to make it into the beverages that people drink. But that gets metabolized into acid aldehyde, and acid aldehyde is actually the carcinogen.
1: Does alcohol affect women differently than men?
0: Well, women seem to tolerate it less well, meaning they can get to a higher blood alcohol level more quickly, probably because women in general are smaller in stature. Um, And that's why the guidelines have been for some time, one drink a day for women, two drinks or less for men. There is a movement to reduce that in men down to one drink a day, but that did not pass the most recent um, revisions to the dietary guidelines. So as it stands right now, there's still a gender break in the recommended amount.
1: Can we talk about some of those other cancers linked to alcohol? Yep. Um, I read that the highest risk of uh, alcohol and cancer is with what you mentioned, head, neck, and esophageal mm-hmm. cancer. Why is that? What, what What is it about alcohol that can cause those cancers?
0: Yep. So when you drink a glass of an alcoholic beverage, even in the tissues in the mouth and the throat, the upper esophagus, um, that ethanol touches those skin surfaces, those mucosal membranes, and an enzyme in those cells converts it to acetaldehyde. And so that those, those tissues are directly being contacted by a carcinogen. And so that's the mechanism by which head and neck cancer and, and esophageal squamous cell cancer are um, being caused by alcohol. For liver cancer, it's actually that the alcohol causes cirrhosis, and the cirrhosis causes the cancer. Um, And in colorectal cancer, we think it has to do with folate metabolism, but we're not entirely sure, meaning that um, folate is extremely complex, but there's a pathway where people get colon polyps, and those eventually turn into cancers, and that alcohol may play a role in that. But um, for head and neck and esophageal cancer, it's directly, the, the tissues are being directly contacted by a carcinogen.
1: Are there other types of cancer that show an increased risk with alcohol?
0: Yeah, there's been lots of studies showing associations. We expect that stomach cancer, which is sometimes called gastric cancer, and then pancreatic cancer will be added to the list at some point, but they are not currently on the list. And then there are things like lung cancer where maybe alcohol plays a role, but it's very, very difficult to tease out from tobacco use, which is a much stronger driver of lung cancer incidence. Well, uh, is
1: alcohol related to all cancers or just a certain amount of cancers?
0: Yeah, just certain ones. And then there's some evidence in uh, a type of kidney cancer that alcohol may be protective. So it's not an, even a universal always bad Um But certainly for these seven cancers, so types of head and neck cancer that we lump together, esophageal cancer, breast cancer, colorectal, and liver cancer, uh, alcohol is a carcinogen for those. Are some
1: people more vulnerable to alcohol genetically?
0: Well, people who have a family history are more likely to um, have alcohol use disorder, meaning drink more and, and drink in a problematic way. Um, people that have family history of certain cancers may be at higher risk. We don't know that for sure yet. Um, and then people that drink as children are more likely to drink as adults. People who drink heavily as children are more likely to drink heavily as adults. So I think it has to do a little bit with your genes, but also within the, the family that you were raised and you know what was kind of normal or culturally acceptable in your family.
1: I've read that uh, alcohol can have a big impact on the brain. Does Mm -hmm. alcohol cause cognitive decline and shrinkage Mm -hmm. on the brain?
0: It definitely causes cognitive impairment through either nutritional deficiencies, so-called Wernicke, Korsakoff, encephalopathy, um, but also just chronic drinkers generally have lower cognitive performance. So yes, alcohol would not, if you were concerned about dementia, cognitive performance, drinking alcohol would not, not be a good idea or drinking alcohol regularly or certainly binge drinking.
1: I also read a study linking alcohol with mortality. Can you mm-hmm. talk, can you address that?
0: Yeah. So are you talking about the, the study in the Lancet? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So alcohol is a funny thing to study epidemiologically for a number of reasons. Um, one is that people generally don't know how much they're drinking, particularly if they're drinking a mixed drink, uh, or they're drinking out at restaurants people just don't know how many shots are in there. And so they sort of guesstimate, um, wine pours can be extremely variable from four ounces to eight ounces or even more depending on who's serving it. So, um, people aren't real reliable in terms of saying how many drinks they had. Um, So, so there's that caveat. And then there's an association that alcohol may be helpful in terms of preventing cardiovascular disease, which I think the jury is still out on. We don't know if that's what's called an abstainer bias, meaning people who don't drink may make that decision because they already have underlying health issues or concerns or symptoms. And so that would drive the abstainer group to be less healthy than the alcohol consumers. So generally, I'm sure people can relate to this. If you don't feel well, you don't really want to drink alcohol if you don't have to, meaning when we have the flu or for people that have had COVID, you know, the last thing you want to do is kind of, you know, drink a beer or something. Um, So there might be something to being an abstainer that otherwise drives your health. But that being said, there have been many association studies that have shown Maybe a benefit for light or moderate amounts of alcohol use on cardiovascular risk. But when you pool all the possible health risks and benefits for alcohol, including cardiovascular disease, you know, liver disease, cancer, motor vehicle accidents, etc, on balance, there is no safe amount of alcohol use, uh, meaning even with one drink a day, um, overall mortality is worse, is higher. And so that's what that modeling study um, that was published in the Lancet showed. But even I think in that same journal, the Lancet, I don't even, I don't think it was the same issue, but shortly thereafter showed a similar study looking just at cardiovascular disease, showing this little improvement in mortality in people that drank one drink a day. So it's, it's very complex. And as a doctor, it's very, very hard to talk to patients about this because Of course, nobody thinks about their diet just because of cancer, right? We think about all kinds of um, health concerns. And so how do you sort of weigh that in totality and counsel your patients on it? It's quite complex.
1: Yeah, while we're on the subject of mixed mixed messages, how about (laughs) all the news about red wine being good for you because of the resveratrol and that alcohol can raise your HDL, which is your good cholesterol levels? Is that hype or truth?
0: It's probably hype, is my is my uh, opinion on the matter. Resveratrol has been overly hyped and probably underperformed in clinical trials. I myself have led a clinical trial in resveratrol in a, in a special type of cancer, and it was sort of a, a no go. Um, you know, there's been lots of theories about why um, alcohol drinkers may have fewer cardiovascular events, but I, I think at the end of the day, we don't exactly know. And we probably won't know for sure, because as you may be aware, there was a randomized trial where half the participants were not to drink alcohol and half were to drink every day. And that study was closed down by the National Institutes of Health because it was heavily influenced by the alcohol industry.
1: We have to take a break to thank today's sponsor. But Dr. Lacanti will be right back with more important information about alcohol. Before we continue, I want to thank today's podcast sponsor, Forager Project. I was very excited to hear that Forager wanted to host this podcast because I use their organic dairy-free sour cream all the time, and I love it, and I will share a fun sour cream recipe later in the podcast, but let me tell you a little bit about Forager. Forager Project is family-owned and operated and crafts 100% organic dairy-free yogurts, kefirs, milks, and sour cream using their hero ingredient, organic cashews, which makes the creamiest, most delicious base for all their products. And only for our podcast listeners, Forager is offering a limited offer coupon for a free cup of yogurt at www.forager, that's F O R A G E R project dot com slash cultivate health. That is foragerproject dot com slash cultivate health. And while you're there, check out the hundreds of delicious dairy free and easy to make recipes on their website. Thank you, Forager Project. So, Dr. Laconte, Drinking Mm -hmm. is an important component of social events, milestones, celebrations, and more Americans are drinking during this pandemic, and they say stress, anxiety, and isolation are contributing to this issue. Yeah. What do you recommend to your patients about their drinking during this pandemic?
0: Yeah, I think... Uh, you you hit the nail right on the head and it's not even just the stress which is considerable for for most of us but also just the ease of alcohol access has um i guess the the ease has improved the the difficulty to get alcohol delivered to your home has lessened the the ability to go through a drive through and get alcohol like all of these rules have kind of loosened in in the wake of covid where we didn't want people congregating in stores. Um, we really, as a cancer prevention community, we really hope that those rules go back to what they were pre-pandemic when this is all done, but we are concerned that they may not. Um, so I think that what we tell our patients is try to stay under the recommended daily amounts. Again, one for women, up to two for men. Um, never to binge drink, um, which for women is, I think, four or more servings at a single sitting and for men it's five or more. I think as physicians, the best thing we can do is ask our patients about alcohol use to remind them that it's not a healthy choice and to troubleshoot with them if they are interested in cutting down. Um, Alcohol is is a, a compound where you can't just stop at cold turkey depending on how much you drink because you will withdraw and patients can die from alcohol withdrawal, which is why Um, During this pandemic, most bars and stuff did not have to completely close down because um, we needed people who were dependent on alcohol to continue to have access to it. Um, But if if patients are open to cutting down, I I like to have that conversation or start talking to them about what resources are available, how to safely do it. And then thinking about things like exercise, um, a healthier diet, as ways to help mitigate that stress and anxiety. We know from things like Katrina and September 11th that when alcohol use in a community goes up, it tends to stay up even after the crisis has passed. So we anticipate that, so we know especially women are drinking a lot more right now, and we anticipate that will persist even after COVID is behind us.
1: Well, what would you say to someone who has had cancer or currently being treated for cancer? and they have two glasses of wine a night to cope, would you say they are risking their health or even their life?
0: Yes, we know that overall cancer mortality is worse for people that would drink that much. So as a cancer doctor, I would ask them to cut down, most certainly if they had one of the cancers that was associated with alcohol use. Um,
1: So if you diagnose someone with cancer, and they are Mm -hmm. drinking more than you think is acceptable, Mm -hmm. How do you address that with the patient? Is this a question you ask them? How much alcohol do you drink?
0: Yeah, yeah. My patients uh, lovingly call me a (laughs) buzzkill. I do ask uh, how much they drink and how often, and I ask what a serving is. So when you ask people how much do they drink, they'll say one drink. And then the immediate follow-up question should be, what does that mean? Because I've had patients that are drinking From a glass, like the size of, you know, a fishbowl, essentially. So that's really like five drinks, right? That's not one drink. Um, Or they'll have a mixed drink with, you know, four shots in it. That's, again, that's four drinks. So having a conversation about what what qualifies as one drink. Um, Talking about patterns of use, so much like smoking, it can be as much psychological as it is, um, you know, just personal preference. And so many people, they just, every night they have you know, where I'm from, it's, it's a brandy old fashioned, but every night they have a drink uh, or two and they watch TV or whatever they do. So talking to them about, okay, how can we break that up? Or how can we swap that out for something maybe a little bit more um, better for your cancer? Ultimately, I think what we know is that doctors are not really asking about this. So the first step is uh, for me to encourage my partners to just ask patients about it. And, You know, if you keep asking, people keep wondering, like, why does the doctor keep asking? (laughs) And that will invite conversations about this. Um, Unlike smoking, there probably is an amount of alcohol that's not completely bad for you, right? So it's a pretty nuanced message where, you know, most days of the week, it'd be great if you didn't drink. It's okay if you have a few, right? Um, Unlike tobacco, where we can clearly say there is no circumstance under which you should ever smoke and we need to work on complete cessation. Right. Right. Well, can um
1: how does um drinking affect uh, cancer treatment? If someone is in cancer treatment and they're current drinker, should they stop?
0: Um well they should not stop cold turkey because like I said, they can withdraw. Um, so drinking heavily complicates surgical outcomes and some radiation outcomes. We don't know how it affects chemotherapy, but probably similarly, and now in the era where we have more oral chemotherapy. There's concern that it may affect how your body metabolizes and absorbs those medications. The reality is we've never really done these studies. We don't really know. But I think there's enough concern about surgery and radiation that, you know, I wouldn't I would instruct them to cut down to those recommended amounts. Which would be
1: like one drink a day. Is that correct? One
0: drink a day for women, two for men.
1: Yep. You mentioned poet Ann Boyer's book called Mm -hmm. The Undying on social media. And it's yep. a book about her battle with breast cancer. Can we talk about cancer treatment and that pink ribbon? And why didn't you recommend that book?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a remarkable remarkable book. Um, yeah, and she's a poet, and it's just it's beautifully written. First of all, um, I recommend that book because it's a real uh, bright light on how cancer is both. A business and a health affliction, and I think that we could do better to be more patient-focused and patient-friendly. You know, there not every you know it's not like the square peg, square hole sort of thing. Like patients, all treatment plans need to be individualized. Um, I thought she was brutally honest in her assessment of oncology and cancer treatment and cancer follow-up. Um, You know, another thing to recommend to your listeners would be Stephanie Mensimer's um, series about her breast cancer treatment and how no oncologist talked to her about alcohol use. Um, She published this in Mother Jones. Um, I just think that, you know, if we deny that there's a problem, we can never fix it. So for me, Anne's book was just really, really eye-opening and and brutally honest. And I, I would recommend it for anybody, but especially if you're a cancer patient or you've been a caregiver for someone with cancer, you're, you're going to definitely identify with it. And ultimately, you know, she survived and she's, she's done well, but um, I think her story rings even more true for patients who don't survive their cancer. Yeah. It looked, it looked
1: very interesting. I'm definitely going to buy it and I'll put a link in this week's show notes to the book. Yeah. Um, Can we talk about cancer and COVID-19 Mm-hmm. Have you seen cancer statistics change since COVID-19?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so initially, many, many fewer patients were being diagnosed because people were not coming in to be checked out because of concern about um, you know COVID-19 exposure in the healthcare setting. And then not surprisingly, what we've seen is later diagnosis, later stage at diagnosis Cancer screening rates went way down in March, April, and May, Um, you know, in some places, 90% reduction. And so we know what that's going to mean is that those cancers are going to be diagnosed at a later stage. So that's pretty much exactly what we're seeing right now. Um, Our numbers seem to be back where they should be. So now it's just kind of the catch up and getting people screened that missed their screening. And Emphasizing that things like cancer don't wait. Um, You know, COVID 19 is scary, but if you need screening, you need screening and you shouldn't put it off for a year or two. Um, Most health centers are doing a really good job and, you know, masking providers and patients, keeping the waiting room socially distanced, doing home based screening if possible, doing mammogram vans rather than coming into the hospital. So there's a lot of different options now that you know, we would encourage people to reach out to their primary care team and discuss.
1: Should someone with cancer have a COVID-19 vaccination?
0: Oh, for sure. Without without a doubt. Um, The uh, National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which is a big collection of big academic cancer centers like myself, put out a statement this week, actually. I can send it to you to to put in your links, um, strongly recommending that every patient with cancer get vaccinated. The one exception might be patients right after bone marrow transplant, just because they won't mount a real good immune response, but pretty much everybody else should be vaccinated. And if I can get on my soapbox a little bit, I'm sorely disappointed that cancer patients have not ended up higher in the priority list, um, in terms of being even, you know, phase one, a or phase one B for getting vaccinated. Interesting.
1: Um, You you know, you forget there are so many people that, you know, need to get the vaccination right away. And, um, you know, someone's just not thinking of
0: it. Yeah, if you're dealing with a terminal illness and you've not been seeing your family for a year, I just, it's borrowed time. And I will tell you that most of my patients, their wish is not to take some you know, grand European vacation, it's to hug their grandkids. And, you know, vaccination seems to be the only way to safely do that for most of us. So yeah, yeah, I I just wish we could get
1: more vaccine out more quickly. Well, hopefully that is going to happen. I have faith. So too. Um, Is there any other advice that you would give to cancer patients and caregivers uh, about cancer and COVID-19?
0: Um, so you know, we continue to think that masking is an act of love for cancer patients. I um live in a state where um the mask mandate is uh very much under threat right now. Our state um, you know, governmental organization has is trying to revoke it. I just think that we protect cancer patients by masking when we're out in public and I understand that it's uncomfortable. Um, And I don't love wearing masks either, but COVID can be spread so easily and you can be almost completely asymptomatic and it can end up killing a patient that, you know, is on chemotherapy. So I just think masking is an act of love and it's showing care for your neighbor. And I just want people to do that to protect cancer patients because you don't know who is a cancer patient anymore. Most of our chemotherapy doesn't cause you to go bald or lose your eyebrows, you know, we have oral therapies. Patients are living much longer. We just we want to protect them.
1: My last question is: I also noticed that you pinned a quote from a doctor named George Bossy, who mm-hmm. emphasized the four main rules for practicing on practicing oncology, and I found it very hopeful. You know, for it, it, yep. someone diagnosed with cancer you talk about those four main rules about cancer and the multiple therapies that are now available
0: yeah um so i, I might get these slightly wrong but um rule number 1 is uh assume it's not cancer until proven otherwise meaning bi- biopsy we must have absolute confirmation that this is cancer even if it looks like cancer even if it you know smells like cancer so to speak You'll see a lot of people in healthcare that will just kind of throw in the towel. They say, well, there's a mass there, and that must be cancer, and we're done. So rule number one is prove it beyond any doubt. Rule number two is every cancer is curable until proven otherwise. So what that means is um, give every patient the benefit of the doubt. If there's lung nodules, don't assume those are cancer until you've proven that they are. If it looks like it might not be surgical resectable, surgically resectable, but you're not a surgeon, get the surgeon to actually, you know, formally render, render an opinion, um, you know, shoot, shoot for the stars, so to speak, really try hard for every patient. Um, we're doing things now that I've been an oncologist for 20 years, 20 years ago, we weren't doing right. The science evolves and um even if you can't cure patients, sometimes you can get them an extra couple of years. And sometimes in those couple of years, new treatments come out or they have a grandbaby or they have, you know, their child graduates from high school. There's all kinds of life that happens in those two years. So fight really hard for your patients. Have really honest conversations about goals, but, but fight hard. And then um, rule number three was even if it's not curable, it's treatable. And that gets to what you said, that pretty much every cancer I see now, there's a treatment for. And when there's not treatments approved by the FDA, we can often explore clinical trials or other off-label uses. So um, there is no untreatable cancer per se. And then when we've run out of treatment options, um, all cancer, um, we can make patients feel better. All symptoms are treatable. So then we can focus on quality of life and comfort and and dignity and maintaining, you know, a so-called good death, that's kind of a loaded term because it means something different for every patient. But the point being that when you can no longer do chemo or radiation, that doesn't mean you stop treating the patient.
1: Wow. That's really just great information and uh, very hopeful information. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Lucanti. Yeah. We so appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us.
0: Yeah, no problem. Happy to help. Okay. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks
1: for joining me today and a very special thanks to Dr. LeConte. I would also like to thank Forager for sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget to go to foragerproject.com slash cultivate health for a free cup of yogurt. Oh, and I wanted to share one of my favorite recipes made with sour cream. It is called wasabi sour cream. And all you do is combine one tablespoon of wasabi powder with one and a half tablespoons of water, one tablespoon of maple syrup, and three four quarters cup of Forager Project dairy-free sour cream. It tastes delicious on cabbage rolls combined with mashed potatoes or dolloped on top of a baked potato. If you want more heat, add a little more wasabi powder. For recipes and inspiration, please follow me on Instagram at OrdinaryVegan and Facebook, facebook.com slash OrdinaryVegan. You can find my new book, The Easy Five Ingredient Vegan Cookbook, on my website at ordinaryvegan.net. You can purchase my vegan organic line of CBD products made from hemp also on my website. CBD oil from hemp has shown strong promise in helping people build an immune system that is Fortress Strong, and I hope it can help you. Thanks, everyone. Till next time. Thanks for joining
0: our plant-based community today. Together, we can accomplish great things. Please subscribe so you don't miss any of Ordinary Vegan's recipes and plant-based tips. If you have any questions or feedback, email us at questions at ordinaryvegan.net. Until next time.